The world around us is full of false choices. That temptation to be us versus them, for or against, in or out. But what does it really look like for followers of Jesus to engage in the messiness of life, the gray issues of faith, to truly allow our lives to conform to the gospel? Join us as we try to figure it out. We are the Brian and Janelle Podcast. I never aspired to be a mob guy. That's not what I wanted to be. My dad was kind of like the John Gotti of his days. I guess what I can say is that I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street. I worked very hard and uh, I was able to succeed. You know, it's just the way I do things. Joining us live for the very first time is the featured speaker at this year's Cleveland Leadership Prayer Breakfast and the Akron Luncheon, Michael Franzis. Michael, welcome to the show. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. So, Michael, uh, you, you have to help out folks here in Ohio who did not grow up in New York City. Can you paint the picture for us of maybe like, you know, late elementary, early middle school, Michael Franzis? What was life like for you? Well, was, uh, I'm sure it was different than many others in that uh, my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York Mafia Cosa Nostra families. And he was a very high-profile figure, a major target of law enforcement. So I grew up in that atmosphere where my dad was constantly uh, you know, targeted by law enforcement. So it was all around us. And... Um, you know, it was, it was it certainly had an impact on the family, me in particular. I mean, I was in school, I played sports, and, uh, you know, heard a lot of stuff from kids in school, and, uh, you know, it was just different. How did you find out what your dad did for a living? Well, there again, my dad was kind of like the John Gotti of his day, so he was always, uh, you know, in front of the media. They were writing about him all the time, so it was kind of hard not to know, you know, what he was all about, even though, you know, he would never bring it into the house. It's not something he discussed in the house. He didn't talk about, you know, his lifestyle in any way. You know, as far as dad was concerned, we were a family, and, uh, you know, he owned a dry cleaning uh, shop in Brooklyn, and you know, he was uh, also involved in the music business. And that's what he, you know, portrayed himself as. But like I said, it was very, very hard not to know what he was about with uh, him constantly being in the media's eye. How did it impact you emotionally as a young boy? Well, you know, I, I really loved my dad. I mean, he was my idol. He was a good father. Uh, he didn't want this life for me originally. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. He supported me, you know, on the field. I was an athlete. So, you know, I, I looked at law enforcement and, and the media that was targeting him as the enemy. You know, I actually grew up hating the police and hating the government because I thought they were harassing my dad and my family. So, you know, it, it, I grew up with that kind of mindset. So I guess, you know, obviously that was wrong, but that's how I saw it back then. So you mentioned your father did not want you to kind of take on the role of the family business. How did that end up happening? Well, during the 60s, through that entire decade, my dad was 
you know, indicted three times in the state of New York for some very serious crimes. He went to trial for all three of those indictments and was eventually found not guilty. But then in 1966, he was indicted uh, by the feds on a major uh, case. He was uh, accused of being mastermind of a nationwide bank robbery scheme. And he was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison. And it was, uh, you know, essentially a death sentence for him at that point. He was 50 when he went in in 1970. So around that time, Joe Colombo, who was the boss of our family, he kind of took me under his wing. Obviously, I knew them well. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends and they said, Mike, you know, what are you doing going to school? Because I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University at that point. I was 20 years old. But I, I said, if I didn't help my dad out, he was going to die in prison. And, you know, he always said to me that he was innocent, that he was no bank robber. And I believed him. And we had to work hard to try to overturn the conviction or he would basically die in prison. So I started to move towards the street and ways to try to help my dad. And at some point in time in, a, in the visiting room in Leavenworth Penitentiary, uh, my dad said, well, if you're going to be on the street and try to help me, then you need to do it the right way. And in his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So he proposed me for membership at that point. How did you feel about that? Well, you know, I, I never aspired to be a mob guy. That's not what I wanted to be. But if I saw it as a way to help my dad, then I was willing to do it. And that's how I viewed it. You know, it was, it was all about helping my dad. Did it help your dad? And was it overturned? No, the conviction was never overturned. Uh, my dad, uh, even though I did get him out on parole after 10 years, uh, he kept going back. My dad was violated five times. So he was in and out over, a, uh, over that 50-year period. He actually did 40 years on the 50. So did it help him? I guess it did, but <laughs> he didn't stay out of trouble. So I don't know how you, you size it up at that point. Yeah. So over a period of time, you begin to find quite a bit of success. How did it become at some point more about you than your dad? Or didn't it? Well, you know what happened is when I got part of that life, you know, I wanted to be the best possible guy in that life that I could be. Not only to please my dad, because, you know, it's just the way I do things. So when you're part of that life, you've got to be part of that life. It becomes about you and succeeding or failing. But in succeeding, you know, making money was was helpful because, you know, to fight a case of that nature, it's very expensive between lawyers and investigators. And then, you know, I became the major support in our family. Uh, I had three brothers and sisters. I had a mom. So, you know, when, when my dad was doing 50 years, there was no income there. So I had to help out in that regard. You know, I guess what I can say is that I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street. I worked very hard and uh, I was able to succeed. It's Brian from the Brian and Janelle podcast. Want to hit pause real quick to ask for your help on something. Thank you so much for listening when there's so many other options out there. In fact, as you know, it can be oftentimes really hard this day and age to find quality Christian content in the podcast universe. That's why we'd be grateful if you'd consider spreading the word about the Brian and Janelle podcast. I mean, you know how it is. You find your favorite podcast, you listen to it, you're used to it and you assume everyone knows about it. When the reality is most of the great podcasts I found out about over the years have come from direct recommendations from either podcast hosts or from other just friends of mine who tell me to listen to something. So maybe today you'd consider telling a friend about the Brian and Janelle podcast. We'd be super grateful. Let's get back to the show. 
Hollywood get wrong about mob life? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, look, there's been some great movies. Um, you know, we always point to The Godfather, which was obviously a tremendous movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what was wrong about the movie is that it doesn't pass on from father to son that easily, you know, to, to be a boss of a family. That was wrong. It doesn't happen that way. It can, but it doesn't. You know, if you take individual films, you know, Goodfellas was a pretty accurate portrayal of that life. You know, Donnie Brasco was pretty accurate in that regard. A Bronx Tale, um, you know, to a lesser degree, it was a brilliant movie also. But then there are a lot that, you know, they just, I, I don't know. You know, some of these movies, they make the mob look uh, inept in many ways. And I'm not glorifying the life, don't get me wrong. Yeah, of course. yeah. Uh, you know, listen, they uh, to to succeed over a hundred year period under some very tough scrutiny is is pretty remarkable for uh, um, any organization to last that long. So, you know, you don't sell it short. You don't put it down in that in that regard. But uh, and some of the movies do that. At some point, your life does take a shift, though, in a direction that I'm guessing not many others in your line of work had. So as, as I understand it, you went to Florida for work and something happened when you were there yeah among many things that i was doing i had a film production company and uh, Smokey robinson who was a friend at that time uh, approached me with a, a breakdance movie that we filmed in florida and we brought um cast and crew from la to work in the film and about 20 professional dancers and to make a very long story short i uh, you know spotted one of the dancers on the film and we started a relationship, and I fell in love with her. And we're now married for 37 years, and she was a young Christian girl, a girl of faith, and she had a tremendous impact on me. And it was really, she was my motivation for walking away from that life. I understood, you know, that the life was in serious trouble. You know, in the mid-'80s, when Rudy Giuliani started to very effectively use the racketeering laws, um, I knew that we were in trouble because I, I hadn't mentioned this, but you know, I had seven indictments myself. I became a major target of law enforcement from day one because I had the name. And they scrutinized me and I had a bullseye on my back for my whole time in that life. So I had seven indictments, two federal racketeering cases. And I knew that, you know, eventually I was going to go down. So I either had to, you know, make a decision. I'm either in or out. And she motivated me to, to try to you know, create a life outside of that life. Now, no offense, but why would a nice Christian girl go out with a mob boss? I mean, did you have great breakdancing skills or something at the <laughs> time? Or what? I mean, how did you I woo wish. her? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is she was, uh, she was 20 years old. She was from Anaheim, California. She had no conception of mafia or Cosa Nostra at all. She had seen The Godfather once and thought it was a good movie. That was it. (laughs) So she really didn't, yeah. I mean, she didn't know much about me at all. You know, she thought I was a film producer. And, you know, I I don't want to make it sound like I, uh, you know, I was dishonest with her. Mm -hmm. You know, but I've never sat down even till today and talked to my wife about my former life. It's just not in me to do that. Obviously, she she knows well about me now, but... You know, back then, I think it was too late. She fell in love with me and uh, and I and her. And, you know, once she started to learn what I was about, you know, her and her mom were devout Christians. And they just believed that, you know, God was in control of the situation and would work out. 
A lot of women put a lot of effort in terms of sharing the gospel with their spouses, whether it's before marriage or after. What was it about the way she shared it or what she shared that was most compelling to create such a change in your life? Well, you know, it was really her and her mom. Her mom was the most godly woman I've ever met in my life. There was, you know, Jesus was like standing next to her all the time. There was no shame in her game at all about it. And, uh, you know, she was a prayer warrior. She had a prayer book that, you know, she entered names into. She entered my name in there early on and prayed for me every day. It wasn't so much what they said. It was just the way they acted. You know, I mean, Camille uh, was 20 years old, but you could tell that she was different, you know, in that regard. She was, uh, her faith meant, I mean, she was normal, don't get me wrong, but her faith was real to her, as it was with her mother. And that was, uh, that had an impact on me. Because, look, I grew up as a Catholic. You know, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. I was an altar boy the whole bit. But for me, it wasn't about a relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. For me, it was rules and regulations in Catholicism. And I'm not blaming Catholics, obviously. It's just that's how it it impacted me. But when I saw them live out their faith, um, it it just had a real impact on me. I said, this is real. You know, what happened there, too, Janelle, is I said, look, my life is a direct contradiction to everything these two women live for and believe. How is this going to work? I have to make a choice here. I'm either with them or, or, or I'm not. And uh, that's what, uh, you know, she became more important to me than anything else, than my oath, my father, or anything else. Uh, that's when I decided to, to try to walk away. Okay, so my knowledge of the mafia is like movies, like you just said. The, the thinking is it's like just like maybe like gangs where it's hard to get out. So what happened with that in terms of you leaving that lifestyle? Yeah, I'm picturing a meeting where you're like, hey, guys, <laughs> right. I, I like Jesus a lot now, so I'm out, okay? Yeah. No? <laughs> yeah. No, well, listen, you're, you're right in your thoughts. There was no meeting because the, the meeting would have ended with me not walking out of yeah, that room. Yeah, for real. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you, you don't walk away from the life. But I had a plan. You know, basically, the, the government, I had just beat a big case that Rudy Giuliani indicted me on. I was on trial for several months, and I was found not guilty. But then they indicted me, you know, three months later on another big racketeering case. And, you know, here, here was the plan. I'll, I'll make it simple. Mm-hmm. I had leverage with the government because I beat them so many times. They really wanted a conviction on me. So I told my lawyer, look, I'm going to take a plea. I said, I'll do a couple of years in prison. I'll, I'll give them back some money that they say I allegedly, you know, took defrauded the government out of. I said, I'll marry Camille. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of uh, prison, I'll have parole, probation. You're not allowed to associate with anybody when you're on, on parole. I said, so, you know, I'll stay out there. Maybe after 10, 12 years, they, they'll forget about me in New York. Mm. Now, it didn't work that way. But, you know, a couple of things broke in my favor. Number one, like I said, I moved out to California. I never testified against anybody, any of my former associates. I never put anybody in prison. And so many guys had their own troubles. I mean, it was a devastating time for people in that life. I mean, you know, they're going away left and right. They're being indicted left and right. So I became less important, you know, to everyone. Now, I, I had some tough times, don't get me wrong, especially when I was out on parole and people were very upset with, with me and there was a contract on my life and my dad in a way turned on me and you know, so there was a lot of stuff that I had to deal with. But, you know, I think, again, God was in control and I'm still here. So I know there's the business life, but I'm sure you developed close relationships with guys in the mafia. Did you influence any of them throughout the years? Did any of them kind of come with you? 
You know, I, I've spoken to some. Uh, you you got to understand this. Just about everybody I ran with is dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. Okay. They're, they're all gone. But, you know, some have contacted me, reached out to me. And, you know, I think a lot of guys, if they knew how to do it, would walk away. But, you know, that lifestyle has such a, an impact on you. It's very, very hard to change your mentality. Yeah. Without the Lord, I don't, I don't know that you can do that. I mean, it just has to be a transformation from within. For me, you know, the mindset I had, I had to break that mindset. And I, I think it, it only happens through a relationship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. I don't see it happening any other way because, look, I still have tendencies. You know, I, I always say you could take the boy out of Brooklyn, but you don't take Brooklyn out of the boy. Yeah. It doesn't disappear. You know, you just you control it better. And, you know, I, I tell people, look, I don't want to go back to prison. You know, I say something at church that my wife cringes on. And I, I say, listen. You know, I don't know if you know my, you know, what I was noted for, but I had this big gasoline scam where we were defrauding the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. Hmm. And it's eventually what I was indicted on. And it was a huge scheme, you know, tremendous amount of money involved. But I say this in church. I say, listen, today, as I stand here on this stage, I have no moral issue with defrauding the government out of tax money. No moral issue whatsoever. But I won't do it because it's illegal and I'm not going to jeopardize my family or my freedom or anything else. And, you know, people in the church clap when they, when I say that, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm being honest. I'm saying, look, morally, I feel I could do better with the money than they can. The government robs you of money, you know? So mm-hmm. people laugh and my wife cringes when she's sitting there. She says, how could you say that? I said, well, I'm being honest. You know, you've got to be honest about things. That's my feeling. But you know, again, I won't do it because it's illegal and I'm not going to put my, my family in jeopardy or my freedom in jeopardy. So, but, uh, you know, it's a whole mindset that has to change and, and that transformation has to come from within, yeah. from the inside out. Would you tell us more about how your dad reacted when you told him about your faith? You know, my dad reacted very unfavorably when, I, when he knew I was walking away from that life. He didn't like that at all. It wasn't so much him knocking my faith. Um, You know, I had an incident that I didn't know how my dad was was perceiving all of this. But, you know, one of my uh, goals in life was to make sure that he was saved and that he came to Christ. And it was very, very difficult for me to talk to him about the Lord. As a matter of fact, I still carry some guilt around because I don't think I did a good job with him on that. But there was a time I sent a, a chaplain in to see him. He was in prison. And when she walked in the door... And she said, you know, Mr. Francis, I want to speak to you. I'm a chaplain. He turned to her and he said, wow, really? Well, that's great because my son is a priest. Now, (laughs) he said it with joy. I'm not a priest, obviously. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, but it meant something to me because he said it to her with pride. He he wasn't upset about it. Um, So I knew he didn't, you know, he, he didn't look down on it. Uh, and, he, you know, he believed in God, but uh, and, and she told me that he accepted Christ during that three hour meeting that they had. Now, I didn't see a lot of evidence of that afterwards, but um, who am I to judge that? You know, I just pray that that happened. But uh, so I think all in all, he accepted it well. Now, before we say goodbye, I'd love to hear your advice for those who have someone in their life they think is just unreachable with the gospel. Because I think your story kind of runs counter to that. So what's your advice for the person who's praying for, but just feels like someone's a lost cause? Well, never stop praying. Um, listen, you know, throughout my 25 years, you know, on the road and speaking all over the world, 
I mean, I've seen transformations that, you know, put mine even to shame, that they're amazing how God has reached out to people you never thought he would reach. So you never give up on that, you know, and, and look, I always point to the thief on the cross. You know, it could be a deathbed experience for someone, but if you put it in their brain and their heart and you pray for them long enough, um, you know, we serve such a, a gracious, merciful God that in the last few moments of their life, um, you know, they can accept him and, and, and they're forgiven and, and they'll move on to paradise. So never, ever, ever give up on anyone, no matter what you think, because, you know, only God knows their hearts. Once again, our guest has been Michael Franzese. He's the featured speaker at this year's Cleveland Leadership Prayer Breakfast. For more information, again, go to neoleadershipevents.com. Again, neoleadershipevents.com. We're going to be broadcasting live uh, from the, the Cleveland event, the Renaissance Cleveland Hotel. Michael, I look forward to seeing you there. I'll be the guy that you'd go, that guy is never anywhere near the mob. <laughs> That'll be me. <laughs> right. Like the least likely to have All been right. in the mob. It will be me. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. That's good to know. I'll look for that. Thanks. Right. <laughs> Janelle, you'll be there also? I will be there. I can't wait to meet you in person. Your story is so well, inspiring. I appreciate that, and I look forward to it. It's going to be a good good breakfast. You take care. You Thanks. bet. God bless. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, if you like what you hear on a weekly basis, we'd be grateful for your ratings and reviews wherever you listen. And also subscribe so you get the latest episodes. Follow us wherever you are on social media and search for us online. We're at brianandjanelle.org. Don't miss our weekday morning show with conversations just like this. You can listen on the Moody Radio mobile app or again at our website, brianandjanelle.org. Special thanks to the talented team of individuals who tirelessly put together this podcast every week, Josue Villa, Mike Reynolds, and Ron Eastwood. The Brian and Janelle podcast is a production of WCRF Moody Radio Cleveland. Until next time, we're Brian and Janelle. You don't need-